Hello everyone, I'm Nathan Coyle, and welcome to my podcast series. Today, my first episode of my podcast will be discussing one of the most gruesome, unsolvable murders in history. And so, our story begins. It is the year 1946 in the town of Texarkana, which is home to 29,919 people, along with the surrounding areas of Arkansas and Dallas, Texas. That is, until terror struck the town. This man's identity is unknown. He was believed to be between 40 and 30 years old. He wore a white hood over his face and was named by the media as the Phantom Killer. It was February 22nd, 11.45pm. A man named Jimmy Hollis, aged 25, and his girlfriend, Mary Jeanne, aged 19, had just seen a movie together. They decided to go to a secluded road area known to the public as Lover's Lane. The area was approximately 50 feet or 50 meters off Richmond Road on an up-paved street about 100 yards from the last row of city homes. Around 10 minutes later, at 11.55pm, a flashlight shined into Hollis's eyes. He couldn't see who was using the flashlight. He initially thought he was being pranked by somebody, or it was somebody looking for a car and they had just gotten the wrong car. But Hollis was so wrong. The man then spoke the words only a madman could say. I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. The masked man then pulled out a gun. It was a 32 caliber. He then pointed it at them, demanding them to get out of the car at once. Jimmy and Mary looked at each other, scared and afraid. They then stepped out of the car. The masked man held his gun, kept on pointing it at them. He then asked Jimmy to take off his pants. At first, Jimmy felt hesitant to do it, but he knew if he didn't, the killer may shoot him dead right there and then go after Mary, fearing for this. He slowly took off his pants, but this only gave the killer the surprise attack. While Jimmy was taking off his pants, the Phantom had pulled out a heavy blunt object and struck Jimmy in the head. The Phantom then struck Willis in the head a second time. He then looked up at Mary and asked her, Do you have any money on you? Mary quickly responded with, We don't have any money! The Phantom then checked Willis, Jimmy's pockets and realized she was telling the truth. There was no money. The Phantom then told her to run and to not look back. Mary did as she was told. She ran for a ditch, but the Phantom told her not to go that way. He told her to run up the road. So Mary did as she was told. She ran. She found a parked car nearby, but there was no one inside it. She kept running and running as fast as she could, but somehow the Phantom had caught up with her. He pinned her to the ground and asked her in his deep, sinister voice, Why are you running from me? Mary responded with, Because you told me to. The phantom then replied with, Liar. He then beat her with the weapon again and proceeded to sexually assault her with the barrel of his gun. Mary managed to get up and then said to the phantom, Go on, kill me. But the phantom didn't kill her. He just stood there, staring at her. He then let her go. He didn't even bother to chase her. 
He just watched her run off. Mary managed to make it to a house and call for help. By the time the police arrived on the scene, the phantom was long gone. Jimmy had survived his injuries and had spent three weeks in hospital. The police had interviewed them, but unfortunately, Mary and Jimmy both gave different descriptions of what the man looked like. Mary believed him to be a black African-American, while Jimmy believed him to be a white man. The police initially thought that they were lying and covering for somebody that they knew who attacked them. Thus, the case was dropped, and ultimately, nothing else could be done. Texarkana went back to its normal days, that is, that is until... On March 23rd... <coughs> The phantom struck again. Richard Griffin aged 29 and his girlfriend Pollyanne Moore, 17, were found dead in Griffin's 1941 Oldsmobile Cedon on Sunday, March 24, 1946. Between 8.30 and 9am by a passing motorist, Richard Griffin had been shot twice in the back of the head and Pollyanne Moore had been shot in the back of her head as well. In response to these murders, the police launched a citywide investigation along with the Texas and Arkansas City Police. The Department of Public Safety, Miller, and Case County Sheriff's Department, and the FBI. By March 27, local police had interviewed around 50 to 60 witnesses, including patrons and employees of Club Dallas, a local bar near the crime scene. By March 30th, police had posted a $500 reward to gain any new information on the Griffin and Moore case that would lead to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible. However, the rewards yielded no fruitful clues or suspects, instead of producing over 100 false leads. When news got lead of these murders, parents worried their kids, told their kids not to go out late at night and to stay indoors when the sun went down. The town was beginning to feel fear, and that is exactly what the Phantom wanted them to do. He wanted them to be afraid. He wanted them to be scared. He loved the thrill and the attention that was being given to him. But that wasn't enough. The Phantom wanted more blood. He needed more blood. So, he watched and waited for the perfect time to strike again. And then he did. On the evening of Saturday, April the 30th, Betty Jo Booker, age 15, was playing her Alton saxophone in a regular weekly gig with her band. At West 4th and Oak Street, at around 1.30am Sunday morning, April 14th, her friend, Paul Martin, aged 16, arrived to pick her up from the performance. This was the last time the pair were seen alive. I will kill you.
Martin's body was found at around 6.30 a.m. that morning by Mr. and Mrs. G.H. Weaver and their son. Blood was found further down the other side of the road by a fence. He had been shot four times, once through the nose, again through the left fourth rib from behind, a third time in the right hand, and finally through the back of the neck. Booker's body was not found until approximately 11.30 a.m., almost two miles away from Martin's body, behind a tree. She was found by the members of the Bode family. Her body was laying, laying on its back, was lying on its back, fully clothed with the right hand in the pocket of the buttoned overcoat. Booker had been shot twice through the chest and once in the face. The weapon used was the same as the first double murder, a 32 automatic Colt pistol. Police had realized that he had used a, he's been using a pattern to do his murders. He would strike every three weeks, or so he would wait a little longer, just in case. It was Friday, May the 3rd, just before 9pm, on a farm about 500 miles off the highway of 67 East, which was almost 10 miles northern east of Texarkana. Two people lived there, a husband and a wife. The husband was named Virgil Starks, age 37, a farmer and a welder. His wife, Katie, was in her bedroom when she thought she heard a noise coming from outside. Huh? Virgil? Virgil? Yeah, honey? Did you hear somebody walking around outside? No, I don't hear anything. down, will you, dear? Ugh. I still don't hear anything. Virgil, did you break something? Oh God, Virgil, no! No! Realizing that her husband was dead, she ran to the phone to call the police. But before she could, she was shot twice in the face by the Phantom. Phantom then attempted to get inside her home. She scrambled all over the house looking for a way to get out but couldn't see anything for the blood was blinding her. She finally managed to get out of the house and run to the nearest house for help. By the time she had reached her neighbor's home, she had lost a lot of blood and passed out from blood loss. The neighbors called an ambulance. Katie survived her injuries. Virgil's but unfortunately, dead. she could not give a description Virgil's of what the phantom looked like dead. because she didn't even see him. Virgil's dead. Virgil's dead. A few days had passed since Miss Starks had been attacked and placed into the care of the hospital. There was still no evidence as to who the killer was, and the people wouldn't walk in front of their windows at night time because of what happened to Mrs. Starks. 
Captain J.D. Morales and Deputy Norman Ramsey were both out on patrol together, discussing the possibilities about what the Phantom may do next. Ramsey thought that he had either crawled back into a shell or had moved on to another town. Captain J.D. Morales thought of another possibility, that he could have been arrested for some other crime. Before they could discuss any further, there was a call on the radio for a car that was reported stolen on the night of Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker's murder. Ramsey and Captain J.D. Morales decided to go check it out because it might be the Phantom himself. Upon arriving, they, ins- they inspected the car and realized it matched the description that was given when it was stolen. Captain J.D. Morales asked if there was any other, p- any other places to park your vehicle from here. Ramsey t- remembered that there was an old sound- sand pit about a mile and a half away. Captain J.D. Morales radioed for more units to be on standby and to have the bloodhounds ready. Ramsey and Morales grabbed their 12-gauge shotguns and began making their way to the sandpit in hopes that they would find the Phantom and finally bring an end to the terror. Upon arriving, they found a set of footprints in the sand. They were on the right track, and the Phantom could not be far from them. Captain J.D. Morales saw a figure in the distance, walking towards the edge of a small hill. He was wearing what looked like a white hood over his face, a blue denim jacket, and grey pants. Morales motioned Ramsey to stay behind cover so the Phantom wouldn't see them. Ramsey ducked behind cover and aimed his rifle at the Phantom. JD pulled out his Colt revolver and aimed. Once the Phantom was enraged, he took the shot. The Phantom was still standing and he made a run for it. Captain JD Morales had missed. Ramsey and Morales chased after him. Climbing the sand pit hills was challenging for them, but they soon had the Phantom in their sights again. The chase led them to a nearby train track. Luckily for the Phantom, a train was passing by. He quickly made a run for the train, with Ramsey and Morales right behind him. He just missed the train hitting him jumping by jumping to the other side of the train tracks. Ramsey and Morales unloaded endless rounds of bullets between the small gaps underneath the train, a desperate attempt to hit the Phantom so he wouldn't get away. bullet had hit the phantom's left leg. They realized that this was their chance to slap the cuffs on him and end him finally. They waited for the train to pass, but as it crossed past them, the phantom was gone. They looked around, but couldn't see him anywhere. He was gone. He had gotten away. Again. Damn! I think he's done it to us again, Ramsey said. He may have, but at least he knows we've been here said Captain J.D. Morales. Ramsey then noticed something laying, laying on the tracks, not too far away. They walked to what looked like a dead animal, but it wasn't. It was another dead body, lying face down, with its head pointing north. The man's left arm was severed at the elbow, and the leg was severed at the hip, were on the inside of the tracks. Oh, God. We were too late. There's nothing we can do, Ramsey. Let's get those bloodhounds out there.
bloodhounds that were brought in quickly lost the scent in this murky bio. Some say most men go into these swamps and never come out, but there was little doubt that the Phantom Killer plunged deep into these swamps of that late fall of 1946. What happened to the Phantom Killer? Nobody really knows. Some say he was convicted of another crime, and today he is still serving his sentence in the Texar Prison Center. Some believe that he died here in these swamps. Texarkana still looks pretty much the same today, but if you should ask people on the street what they believed happened to the Phantom Killer, most would say that he was still living there after the murders and was walking free.